So growing up, today's guest, Trevor Hall, he was kind of like a local surf kid, you know, surfing in the summer, skateboarding. That was the culture he was around. He also really dug music. He was exposed to it from the earliest age. His dad is a drummer and had always done that on the side and various bands and a massive music collection. So Trevor was always kind of around music and he loved music and he played music, but he never thought it would be his career. You know, like he was on a different path until he started playing and through a series of coincidences and kind of random introductions, he found himself playing shows in LA and going to music school. This profoundly changed the direction of his life, but that wasn't the first change. There were then a series of sort of fortunate and unfortunate incidences that took him from LA to India, back to LA, and then traveling all around the country and the world, developing his voice, signing with a major record label, then having that implode, and then really kind of taking time and saying, this is who I am. This is who I need to be. This is my voice, my gift. This is how I want to be in the world. That journey, that really moving journey and commitment to essence and voice and craft is where we sort of dive into in this week's conversation. Really excited to share it with you. And be sure to listen to the end because Trevor brought his guitar along with him and we get a little uh, mini studio concert with him at the very end. You'll be really, really moved as I was literally sitting across from him as he closed his eyes, pulled out his guitar, and just really shared something beautiful. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated by your music and also just your story. It's like you've lived these really distinct mm-hmm. stages of life that have brought you to this point of being a musician and really defining the way that you want to be a musician mm-hmm. uh, and a creator. So you grew up, from what I know, down Hilton Head, right? South yeah. Carolina. Yeah, tourist-like right. island. I mean, if you like golf, that's like yeah. Mecca. Yeah. Yeah. Not my place. <laughs> yeah, I know. Not my place either, but... It was a really amazing place to grow up, though, because it's just so incredibly beautiful. Mm. Small town, small community. You know, you know everybody. Yeah. So were you a water kid then? Such a surfer. Yeah. You know, boating all the time. Like, it's just kind of the culture there. And it's just an amazingly gorgeous place. So I just spent a lot of time outside. Mm. And yeah, my parents still live there. I mean, we get back there every once in a while. You know, growing up, you know, you're you kind of rebel against the place you grow up. Yeah, you know, like, always. <laughs> yeah, it's like the common story. And then now, when I go back, I'm just like, oh my god, this place is so gorgeous. You know, yeah. so I've appreciated so much more. I think. You right. Know, I now. think it's like similar in the, the Hamptons. I mean, we're in New York City, right. so the East End of Long Island. For those who don't know, is sort of legendary beaches and towns right. called the Hamptons, but it's also astonishing wealth and yeah. you know society and celebrity but there is very much sort of you know the townies right and then you know like the people who summer there absolutely and usually there's a lot of tension there i remember when i got was in college i used to work just painting houses like kicking around painting houses out there so i had no money i was like barefoot and ripped up shorts all the time so i got like to experience a little bit of that tension i have to imagine it was like similar there because it's kind of a similar environment yeah i mean in hilton head too i mean it's you know, the summer is just mad. Yeah. I mean, it's just like you can't even like, the traffic is insane because it's it's an island. I mean, there's only right. one road in, one road out. You know, it's kind of like the Hamptons too, you know. It's, right. it's kind of only one way to get over there. But it's just something that you, I think, as like resi- as we were like residents of the island, it's just something that you bear. I mean, we usually left during the summer. Mm. Um, my parents were really good about getting me out and exposing me to different cultures and not, you know, having me grow up thinking like, this is life, mm. you know, tennis and golf and country yeah. clubs. And <laughs> but I mean, for what I know, your dad, because your dad was a musician also, right? Yeah, he's a musician and he's a drummer. Right. He still plays. I mean, he plays in church there on Sundays and he has like his weekly jazz gig. Nice. And he does a lot of other stuff with his band there. So it was a unique upbringing, you know, like my parents were very um, liberal, very, because it is the South, you know, and I went to a prep school and it's kind of like, you know, this is what you do and you're going to go to college, preferably in the South, and you're going to be you know, you got to wear your polo shirt and your khakis and your loafers. And I was just like, not about that. And my parents were so liberal. You know, I knew a lot of families where their parents were just so strict. Yeah. And so how did your folks end up down there then? Well, they were actually from up here. They're from the New York area. And my mom was, they're both tennis pros. Right. Yeah. And my mom was working. So it's like they, I'm like, it sounds like they're very much like split personality. Yeah. It's so funny because <laughs> like, they like, what was my dad was working for the U.S. Open. Okay. And my mom was working for like Sports Illustrated and, and right. they met at the U.S. Open 
Because my mom was like going to pick up tickets for like her clients right. or whatever. Which for those not in the tennis world, the U.S. Open is like one of the, the big four yeah. tournaments. And it happens like in New York. Yeah, yeah. In Flushing, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But my dad had been coming down to Hilton Head since like the 70s. Ah, okay. So he was kind of like a little bit of a hippie, you know. Yeah. And at that time in the 70s, Hilton Head was like this incredibly undiscovered place. There was like one stoplight. There was no paved roads and it was just kind of a, his thing. Like, I think he always had it in his mind. Like, this is where I want to raise a family. And, mm. and eventually he brought my mom down there and said, you got to come see this place. My mom fell in love with that. And then Stan Smith, who's a really famous yeah. tennis player, is my dad's really good friend. And he's Stan Smith started a tennis like academy down there. Uh. And he asked my dad to start it with them Got and it. that was kind of the thing that sealed the deal right right for like, them. yeah yeah and back then also i mean from what i know so a friend of mine a guy named drew brophy who lives out in southern california now grew up i think right around there also was a hardcore surfer and then has become a really well-known surf artist now oh, and wow. does these incredible incredible works of art and He's about my age, and I think it's because it, from what, the way he described it, it was just like massive laid-back surf culture. It was kind of the dominant culture yeah, when he was growing up. It out. was just, I mean, especially back then, yeah. it was extremely, it was like very bohemian vibe. And my dad, you know, he kind of like, when you talk to him, kind of like reminisced, oh, those days, if you would have seen it in those days, it was like very chill. Because now it's quite built up, yeah. and it's a destination spot, but... There's still a little bit of that, you know, in the certain sections. And that's the part I think that I, as a kid growing up, really tapped into, mm. you know, was this one stretch of beach there called North Forest Beach where all the surfers would hang out. And at that time, there was no paved roads. And it just had this really cool islandy feel that was just kind of my the thing that I plugged into there, mm. you know, I didn't plug so much into the golf, you know, or the tennis or like the country cup nah. club thing. You know, I plugged into that kind of. So you were like, like the, the next generation of counterculture, like the small remaining slivers, so. the piece that yeah. you latched onto. You're like yeah, this. We, I had like my like six friends yeah. and we were kind of known, you know, at our schools, like, Oh, those are the surfer kids. You know? Skateboard kids. <laughs> yeah, that, absolutely. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, but it was really beautiful. It was beautiful. Yeah, that's awesome. So it sounds like through your dad, was that really sort of like your early exposure to music and really vibing with it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my dad, he's more of a rock star than I am, really. Mm -hmm. You know, he loves the whole culture and shows. And when he comes on tour with us, he's just like, he eats it up. But he, you know, there was instruments all over the house. Mm -hmm. He had a really massive like record collection, CD collection. And as a kid, like that was just kind of my wonder world, you know, like I would like scroll through and like pick out a vinyl or something that looked cool and I'd put it on the the system and like... All right, so top three playlist when you were a kid, like from dad's collection. Oh my God, from my dad's collection, definitely the Doobie Brothers, yeah. the Allman Brothers, that type of music and then and then i liked like earth wind and fire because my right. dad was really into jazz so like a little like r&b and yeah. southern rock <laughs> yeah it was so funny and then like who else was like oh my god like i remember like listening to like simply red you uh, remember yeah. them yeah, yeah of course yeah so i was like into that and that was what was so cool about my dad is he just had so many different 
he he just loved music. So it wasn't like one particular thing, but, and then my dad was really into Dave Matthews, you know, Hmm. growing, you know, and I think that was kind of the start for me of like the music that I was starting to like get into as a kid. And there's a lot of local bands at that time, like Hootie and the Blowfish. Yeah, that's right. Who used to play down, they used to play Hilton Head like all the time. Right, right, right. It was kind of like Southern bands. Who's the um, main guy again? Uh, uh, something uh, Damon, Damon Marcus. Rucker. Ru- Ruckus. Or, Ruckus. Something no, like that. Ruckus. Because he's still around, I think. But yeah, I don't yeah, think Hootie he, is. Hootie's not still around, though, right? No, but he's... that. I think that was Hootie, though. Right. I think it basically but he, was. Now he's, I think, more of like a country artist. Oh, uh, okay. I think he's like lives in Nashville and is doing his own like solo oh, thing. Cool. But that was like a big yeah. deal, you know? So then we had, we also had like, you know, one music store mm. on Hilton Head. And it was like, yeah, that's the place, you know, and I would like ride my bike there. And, and at the music store, there's a family on Hilton Head called the Daily Family. And they had a, a band called Low Country Boil or Low Country Bluegrass Boil, something like this. Mm. And they were just kind of known as like the music family on Hilton Head, just really amazing family. I'm friends with some of the guys even today but that's when i started kind of getting into like reggae and because i was taking lessons from one of the sons yeah one okay. of the daily sons. guitar yeah. yeah and that's when i really kind of started getting into oh, like, so that's really you can hear there's still such a strong reggae influence yeah in what i mean you write that today. was that was the music that really like was my thing yeah i felt like as i feel like as a youth like you can certainly go both routes but i feel like there was like you either went like the beatles route you know, like Rolling Stones, or you like went like Bob Marley route. Right. And I definitely like went the Bob Marley route. Which also matches with Surfer. Yeah. And, although like the skateboard side of it also like speaks strongly to punk. <laughs> yeah. Well, I definitely went through my punk rock stage like, yeah. for like a few years, you know, and was definitely into all those bands. And I just loved music, you know, and I loved all different types of music. Yeah. And so there was a thing as a kid kind of like, well, what music am I going to play? You right. know, but... I think it all just served its own purpose, you know, and yeah. helped me just have a wide. When variety. you were when you were younger, though, in your mind, is this just like this is cool? I'm having fun doing this, or are you like, mm-hmm. oh, this is my future? I never like, never ever, to be honest. Like even when I signed a record deal, was like, this is my future. It's so weird for me, and people are like, that's so weird. I'm like, I never was like, I want to be a musician. It was just like. From the time I remember, like, music was just my life, like, inseparable from life. Like, it was just, like, it was so much deeper than, like, I am a musician. It's just, like, it's a deeper thing for me. It's just, like, I don't know. It's hard for me to put into words. So there wasn't a time. I just kind of was, like, this is what I do, Mm. no matter what. If I do it for a living, if I don't do it for a living, if... Like, I just never thought about that. I was just like, this is what I do. Yeah. And when it all started happening, you know, I was still so young. I mean, I signed my first big deal when I was like, I don't know, 17. You know, you're not thinking about like your future. You're just kind of like, oh, this is cool. Like, that's how I was like, this is amazing. Like, cool. But if that happened or didn't happen, it's just, I don't know, it's just a very deep-seated thing within me. Yeah, it's, it's like identity like, level. Yeah. Do you remember a time, I don't know if you like if you even still answer this, but where somebody was like, who are you or what do you do? And you're like, I'm a musician or I'm a songwriter, I'm a singer. 
like, do what, what's your earliest sort of mm. recollection of like sort of saying either speaking out loud or just right. like knowing this is actually my identity. Right. It could have been as early as like when I went to, I went to a boarding school for music. Yeah. This was for high school, right? For high school. Right. Yeah. And maybe it was at that time where it's mm. kind of like, this is what I do, you know, but wait a minute, but you go from mm -hmm. South Carolina because boarding school was in California, right? Yeah. All right, so you literally, you go across country to a boarding school right. for music, but right. in your mind, it's still not entirely cemented. It's just, I tell, I'm being completely honest. It was just like, yeah, I was just like kind of going with the flow. So you're just kind of rolling with it. I was really rolling with it. I was just kind of like this, okay, here we are now. We're at this school and uh. this is it, you know? Or this is where I am right now, you know. It was just so strange. I mean, even when I signed the record deal, you know. Right. right was, so, so how does that happen? So you're So I'm at this school, right? right? I'm at this art school. It's incredible place, like some of the best years of my life. I went there for high school for three years. And it's all focused on the arts. So and it's international, it's kids from all over the world. So anything that has to do with art is supported. And anything that has to do with art you know, is an excused absence, you know, if you're running, have a concert or whatever right. like this. So the school was about two hours from LA. Almost every weekend, I'd, somebody would drive me down to LA and my dad had a family friend out there. It's like my uncle. That's how close we are. Who was living in LA it was an actor. Mm. And he kind of knew some people, you know, that were in the music thing, business, whatever. And was like, you know, you should play a show. And I'm like, no way, like, I can't play a show in LA. Like, what are you thinking, you know? But he set up a little, like, kind of open mic type of thing. And slowly, slowly, you know, that got some buzz. And then I was going down every weekend, every other weekend playing and, you know, supporting this person or supporting that person. And the word just kind of spread around town. So by my senior year, I had gotten a manager, you know, and that manager had was kind of shopping me around to all these different record labels. And it was just so funny because I'm growing up, you know, I'm like 17 and like every weekend I, I flew to New York to meet with like Columbia. I flew to like Seattle, you know, it's just, and you, I met like all these big wigs. But like to me, I was like, well, I also have like, I got to get back because I have like algebra. On I got finals. <laughs> yeah, you know, so it's just like, it was just so funny. Like it was when I look back on it, I'm like, whoa. Because I'm sure you talked to your dad like through this yeah. window of time. Yeah. And like, and, you know, like your dad being somebody where like this clearly is a part of his identity too. Right. What's as your, like it's becoming a more serious part of your life. And now like the beat quote industry is taking right. an interest in you and the industry's right. got a real interesting reputation. Right, right. What are you talking to your dad about during this time? Well, my dad was extremely... My both my parents were extremely supportive. Yeah. You know, because I was with my dad's like best friend, he was really felt like I was in like really good hands, you know, which I was. We just, you know, it was just it's hard like I'm I'm just thinking like when I'm looking back on that time, again, like I was in school. Like I was yeah. like I don't think I understood the magnitude of like what it meant to like sign a deal and like do this thing, you know, and my parents weren't like forcing me obviously to do that. You know, they, I could do whatever I want. They were just very supportive, but they were extremely happy for me, but they were also very, very protective because of 
the industry stories and all horror yeah. stories and all that stuff. <laughs> and I was so young, I kind of had the mentality of like, I don't want to think about all this. I just want to like play music, which, you know, I feel like is a natural feeling at that age, but it was also very naive because of what transpired you know i really had to grow up like extremely quick yeah so, you know? so share what happened because you so you yeah. end up signing a deal with Geffen. i sent i signed a deal with which, is, which is huge huge right deal. this is like what 17 year old kid at yeah. that point senior signing. in high school right so this um, is like in theory from the outside looking at this is the dream yeah yeah and you know but it was weird too because like all my friends were going to college yeah you know and i thought like well that's what i have to do you know, but it's like, okay, well, I guess I, I'm not going to college. I have like this different path, like whatever. Sign this big deal, get like huge amount of money, you know, and I moved to LA by myself at like 18, whatever, and get this huge apartment on the beach, you know, and uh, I was miserable because I had no friends because I went to a boarding school. So it's not like when you like leave yeah. school, all your friends are in town. You know, I didn't have at that age, like, I didn't know how to like use money, you know, like, so I wasn't, I guess, like, I didn't understand the value of money, I guess, if my own money and what it means to save and what it means, you know, this and that. So you're just kind of like spending it, you know, whatever. But I was very lonely. I remember I was smoking a lot of weed, you know, because I, what else was I going to do? I couldn't go to out to meet people because I wasn't old enough to get in anywhere. <laughs> And then I'm on this this label of all these grown-ups. You know, I'm, all I'm doing is hanging around grown-ups, you know, and they're all telling me, you know, how I should be, what I should sing, mm. you know, how I should look like, you know. And as a young kid, it's very confusing, you know, because you want to, you know, you think, oh, I, can tr I came from a small town, you know. I'm like, oh, I can trust these people. These people care about me, you know. It was just an extremely boom, like huge wake up call because I got signed to that label. Then the president of that label at the time left the label and a new president came in and it was kind of like we had to start from scratch mm. and we had to prove ourselves to that president. And then, but that president didn't like the album we recorded. So you have to record another album. So it's like, okay, so we record another album. And then right before that album comes out, they dropped us from the label. And this was over the course of like three years. You right. Know? So we had two albums that were shelved and we couldn't, they didn't let us have them. You know, they kept them. And um, it was just a very confusing, extremely confusing time. And I had to grow up really fast and be like, okay, yeah, you can't trust anybody. You got to learn to speak f for your own truth. And it was just very intense. What was the... Was there a sort of a moment of reckoning where you're like, all right, I'm three years in. Mm -hmm. I've done the work to record two albums. Right. They're never going to see the light of day. Right. And I'm running out of money. Because the way the record right. industry works is like, you get money up front. Yeah. Well, at and least it it, you used to. Right? Well, I was getting like a monthly <laughs> allowance for right. like a year and then it stopped. Right. You know, and I... In uh, theory, and, you have to earn that back, yeah, too. <laughs> and also, like, at, by that time, we were expecting to have like an album out. Yeah. So you could have some type of you know, revenue, but we didn't, you know? And so what we just toured like nonstop for those three years. And we used the money from Geffen to go out and tour because touring is very expensive. Right. And then eventually that money ran out and it was just like, whoa. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So you find yourself like 17, signed mm-hmm. by one of the biggest labels in the world, right. solid chunk of money, kick-ass house yeah. on the beach, yeah. like recording a record, top yeah. of the world, yeah. three years later, you're out of money. <laughs> you're, yeah, I'm out of that apartment. You're out of the apartment. You've basically- I have no music to show for Right, it. and your label has dropped you. Yeah. And you're alone in LA. Yeah. <laughs> well, that by that time, I was- um, because what happened is I had this kind of a branch, I guess, story, but it's it's part of the whole journey is, you know, I was going to this temple, this Indian temple down in Laguna Beach, which was right. like about an hour from where I lived. And to be honest, I would go down there because they always cooked for me. 
<laughs> because I was 18 years old. I didn't know how to cook. You know, I was always eating out and it was just hard. And I remember when I, whenever I'd go down there, one of the monks would always cook for me and it would just warm my heart. And I was hungry. Like it was weird. It's just like I, I was like driving down there because he cooked such good food and it was like a home cooked meal. And, but I also, I started going down there and, and I started to make friends with this, with these people in this community. And I was, it's something that I was just craving because I was so lonely. So I moved out of that apartment in LA, moved down to Laguna, was living in Laguna, uh, living in a little studio apartment there. Yeah, and for those who don't know, Laguna mm -hmm. is not the least expensive place in the world. No, to live. It's, it's very it's expensive. Extremely expensive. Extremely place. expensive. Yeah. And um, I had a very small little studio above a garage of this person's house. Then I really ran out of money. Like I had like a few hundred dollars to my name. And I had like a rent to pay that I couldn't pay and I was freaking out. And I went to the temple one day and they said, well, you're here every day anyway. Why don't you just stay here till you get back on your feet? There's no pressure. You can come and go as you please. And it can be a week, two weeks, month, whatever you want. So I was like, okay. So I moved in and I didn't leave for like eight years. Mm. You know, I just stayed. So... At that time, when I got dropped and the whole thing, I was living down there in this in this temple, <laughs> in this ashram down there, which was just, it really kind of saved my life, really. Yeah, it I, I sounds think, like it was your, like, at least you had that as an anchor. Yeah, I, I think I would have been in a really bad place if I didn't have that community. I would have, I don't know what I would have done. So you hang out there for, what are you doing there for eight years? Well, I had a teacher in high school who took me to the temple one weekend when we were up at school. And I was really hungry for like, I was always into like different cultures and very hungry spiritually. I think that's why I like gravitated towards reggae music so much is because it was a music that was so spiritual and was, yeah. you know, it was just like, they're talking about something bigger here, you know? And I went to this temple and I, I just really gravitated to it. I gravitated to the whole vibe and the philosophies and everything and just started going there like every single day. And then when I moved in, I was living there kind of as like a monk, you know, like lifestyle, you know, because we'd wake up and we'd meditate and then we'd have prayers. And and then in the day, you're kind of free to do what you want, study, whatever, you know. And then at night, we chant again, you know. And, and I just got into this routine. I got into this. I was tapping into something that I had wanted to tap into for like so long to this deeper side of myself and my relationship to God or like the spirit, whatever you want to say. And then that's when my music really started to change. How so? I felt like before when I was making the music, I was really kind of uh, searching so hard for something deeper. And when I started going to the temple, it got way more focused and got kind of a little more like devotional and music really became my tool to like explore my inner consciousness, you know, and I knew that that's why I loved music so much is because it took me into a place that was beyond words, beyond thought, beyond my rational way of thinking. And the temple life really provided this beautiful kind of like fertile ground, you know, for these songs to kind of come forth.
Mm. And it was it was really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting to hear you say that on a couple of levels. I've done a lot of research on some of the world's greatest creators across right. all domains. And one of the things that I was surprised to discover is that so many of them ritualize every part of their life. They ritualize and automate every single part of their life right. except for the creative process. Mm. What I realized they were doing was they were essentially taking the need to use any creative or cognitive bandwidth out of every part of their life, except mm. for that window where they sat down and it was their job to create. Right. And in doing that, it allowed them to kind of go to a different place. Right. It's beautiful. Yeah. It sounds like that's a lot of sort of like what you created for yourself. Yeah. I, I, because I never heard of it like that. It's really beautiful because I think like songwriting, I mean, or any type of art, really. I mean, I look at music as like a channeling like experience, you know, and I'm sure a lot of different songwriters can create because you don't really know. It's like, well, how do you write a song? So you can't really like explain it. It's just like, it's something that moves through you and there it is, you know, or like, how did you do that painting? You know, it's like, I don't know, you know, but I feel like there's all these different things that we do to like nourish that space within our hearts, let's say, or souls, whatever. And it has to be kind of ritualized. It has to have this kind of thing, so this discipline almost, so you can who get into that space. And then there's comes the point when you're actually making the art or whatever, where all of it kind of drops away and you're in like a flow state. You're in this like, you know, but that flow state I feel like is due to all the nourishing things that you're doing mm. for your creativity outside of making the song or outside of, you know, it's interesting. It makes me think about like when we go on tour, right? I have such a purpose. I'm like, okay, I am waking up. We're go driving to this place. I'm playing a show. It's like, uh, you know, yeah. and then you get tired and you're like, Oh man, I can't wait to get home, you know, and just like rest. And right when you get home, we call it PTD, post-tour depression, because you get home and you don't have any ritual. You mm. don't have any schedule or anything. And you kind of like, you need to rest, but you kind of slump into this place of like, what am I doing with my life? Oh my God, I'm just sitting around. I'm the And I think it's this, it shows that structure, you know, is so important for that moment of the flow, for that moment of the freedom of the music and all that stuff. And when you're on the road, it's, yeah, we wake up, we eat, we do exercise, whatever we need to do, we drive to the place. But that also needs to be in place, I think, when you're home in some mm. way. And I think that's what that temple space did for me, is I had this structure in my day and was doing these things that really got me into my spirit. So when the time came for a song to come through, I was feeling strong, I was feeling nourished, and it would just happen. Yeah. I love the way you put that. It's like there are different phases, you know? Yeah. And it feels to me like what you're describing is both structure and purpose. So it's right. like when you're on tour, you have a structure and a purpose. You know, like the structure is like all this stuff that's the same thing. You wake up, you get in the bus, and you, know, right. you go to this place, you perform. But you also have a purpose. It's like, you know, like you are, quote, on tour. Like, right. This is the window where, like, my purpose is to share the work. Right. Right. And then when you come back, you've got the new structure mm -hmm. of the ashram. And 
in addition to that structure, it seems like, I don't know if you sort of like consciously said, well, okay, so now like my purpose is shifting. Now mm -hmm. it's time to like allow and create, like that's the purpose mm -hmm. around this other structure. Right. Um, but it sounds like what you're describing is there's a window in between those two right? where like the structure and the purpose sort of temporarily drops away. And that's like the danger zone. Right. I think that is the danger zone. I mean, I think that's why a lot of artists, I mean, honestly, like use drugs or drink or whatever. It's just to, to get them through the danger zone mm. because there is a, a point where, you know, it's psychologically very intense to like, I mean, I'm not like extremely famous, but I can imagine somebody like, you know, whatever, the Rolling Stones or whatever, you go on stage and you play to a stadium of like 20,000 people. And then an hour later, you're alone in your hotel room, silent. Like it's an intense psychological mm. world to be thrown in between all the time, you know? Yeah, that middle ground, I think. I like calling it the danger zone. Yeah. <laughs> the danger zone. Ah, wait, Got an earworms getting It's just, um, it's a place that I think a lot of artists, not just musicians, a lot of artists struggle with. Yeah. I think anyone who aspires to, uh, you know, really perform at their best. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we see this also with Olympians. Right. Which I didn't know until I talked to a friend of mine who was a former Olympian who then became a psychologist to help work with former Olympians because after her Olympics, right. she dropped into a deep depression. And then yeah. she said what she learned was that it's massively common. Even if you, if you show up and you like, you meddle, you do exactly right. what you want, you come back and all of a sudden the structure and the purpose are gone. Yeah. I never and thought of that. You don't know what to do about so it. so difficult. Yeah. But it's kind of like just a variation of what you're talking about. Yeah. It's a balance, you know, yeah. it's a balance and like, it's just, you know, my wife and I were just talking about this like the other day because we were, no, it was last night. We were driving back from our gig really late and we passed like the lottery, you know, like super lottery sign. It's like whatever, 150 million. And my wife was talking about, I, I, I would never want that, you know, and we and it's kind of gotten to this whole, we got into this whole discussion about work and the kind of healthiness of work and I don't know, it got into this really like interesting space. You know, a lot of the the spiritual inspirations that I have, these saints and sages in India, whatever, all of them advocate work and not don't advocate, oh, this life your spiritual life isn't like dropping out and like going to live in a cave in the forest and like mm. sitting around. They really advocate work as worship and work as like a devotional act, I think that keeps your mind in a healthy place, you know, staying engaged and having a purpose. And, you know, it's just, it's extremely important, extremely important. And I think, you know, there was times like I'd come back to the temple, right? Because it's a very different lifestyle than on the road, you know, yeah. and you'd, I'd come back to the temple and my whole body, my whole mind and body would rebel against the schedule, yeah. You know, it's like, God, I just want to chill. I want to watch Netflix and chill. <laughs> Don't want to be up at four in the yeah. morning, like yeah, chanting. You know, right? But it was just, I did it, you know, and I'd fall into it. And then there was times when I'd come back, you know, and I'd like stay in a friend's place for like a few days because I needed like a buffer. Like a transition zone. <laughs> yeah, like a transition <laughs> right. zone. I was just slumped in my own 
muck, mm. you know? And I thought, oh, this is what I needed, you know, like to just chill. And I just find my mind just going down. And yeah, I saw that how, how important it was for me to have some type of, even if it was like, I mean, I'd wake up and like every morning I'd sweep the courtyard, mm. you know, something like that. Like it doesn't have to Simple. be like some crazy thing, like, or I'll clean the dishes today every lunch you know like just something to stay engaged because it's very easy yeah in life really in life yeah i think i mean especially in the morning like that yeah. morning routine yeah doesn't have to be complex but as long as yeah. it happens yeah it just kind of sets the tone for Absolutely. everything it's like sets the tone of being intentional yeah from the very beginning of the day so at some point you end up so you're in the ashram you're creating more you're com- right. like and the way and what you're creating is changing in a pretty right. profound way right but you also end up in india right How's that happen? I have no freaking idea, man. I'm from South Carolina. Right. You know? Picturing this like surfer kid, you like spend man, a little bit of time in I Laguna had, and then all I of a sudden. I had no idea, man. I was like, you know, it was so funny because like, I remember like before I left like South Carolina, you know, my life, I think it was like my uncle or somebody like sat me down and was like, you know, Trevor, you got to be careful out there in California. There's a lot of different cults and a lot of crazy people out there and before you know it you're gonna you know be in a cult and you're gonna have tattoos and dreadlocks and you know pretty much two years later i come back to hilton head with tattoos and <laughs> right, dreadlocks right, and, living I'm in ashram. About, and i'm talking about this <laughs> ashram that i'm living in my parents were like what you know right but they were they were cool with it you know they came out and visited a bunch of times and so yeah i'm this is staying in this ashram it's an indian ashram you know and the monks from that ashram traveled to India every single year. And I just found myself, yeah, in 2007, I was 20 years old. And we went in January, we left on January 1st, I'll never forget. And I had never been nearly that far away from the United States. I mean, my parents took me to like, I think the farthest we went was like South America. We went to Ecuador one time, but I remember flying over and just like being in like our layover in like Japan you know, it kind of shows the flight map, you know, and I was just like, oh my God, I'm so far away from home. It was weird because like growing up, like I always, India, I was like, ah, I'm not attracted to India. It just seems like weird and too much. I was always attracted to like Zen and like clean, like Japan and like, you know, Mm -hmm. I, so we landed in India and I remember I got out of the plane and the smell just hits you so hard because a lot of brush fires and it's just very distinct smell. And that's a smell that I've grown to love dearly whenever I smell. I just, you know, it takes you back. And I remember I walked out of the airport and I'd never seen so many people. Like I was just blown away and I had a complete anxiety attack. And Mm -hmm. I was like, I want to get back on the plane, you know? And I was like, just relax, just breathe through it, you know? And were you alone or were you? No, I was with the monks. Okay. I, I traveled with the monks there, these, right. these two monks. But I remember we got in the cab and we drove to the place we were staying. And all of a sudden, this just feeling of like, I want to say home, but that sounds so cliche. But I just felt this like, I don't know, like this just belonging, this like collective unifying energy like i don't know it was just it was so magical for me and i just knew i just knew that like this is my place 
You know, I don't know why, but this is this is going to be my place. And that first trip, I think I was there for like three weeks. And we traveled to a few different places. And it just changed everything. It just changed everything for me. I, I remember right, the culture shock wasn't going there. The culture shock was coming back. I remember when I landed in L.A., I was so blown away. Like, it was just crazy. I don't know. I was just like, what the heck is going on? All I thought about was going back. Mm. As soon as I got back to the States, all I thought about was how am I going to get back? How am I going to get back? Yeah, I've just been going every year since since that time, almost almost every year. Yeah. How did that influence the creative side of you? Yeah, I, I mean, it really opened me up just period because it was just such an incredibly different culture. And, you know, here in the States, you know, we worship materialism. You know, we do. We worship money and power and things. And here it's kind of hard to, rem sometimes hard to remember spirit, you know, like you're walking around and because you're confronted so much with ads and whatever it is like this, you know. But over there, it's hard to forget the spirit. It was just like everywhere you turned. I mean, it's so a part of their culture and life in separate, even if you're in a big city, you know, it's just, it, that was the thing that hit me so much. You're just constantly reminded of a higher power. And that, I think, just being in that environment, you know, even though it was only like three weeks at that time, it just like, it just totally blew my mind, heart open. And um, musically, I think I just went so much deeper into my journey, I guess, of like self-discovery. Like it, it really like sparked a match, you know, it was like, I want to find out like who I am, like in my truest essence, not like Trevor Hall, like who am I? Like, I want to know like who we are, like in essence, because it just lit this fire, this raging fire in me. And music was my, my way of sparking the fire, my way of uh, feeling the flame. And, and um, it just became so much more focused i think after india mm. yeah good life project is sponsored by lexus gx so have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game for me it was this high-end mountain bike i love the ultralight frame the suspension the precision gearing and i realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential so i started training harder so i could experience the joy it could give back to me and it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So you come back, and then mm-hmm. you're basically been going back and forth now for about, yeah. about a decade, right? Yeah, I yeah, because that was in two thousand seven. Yeah. yeah, so and music starts to become different for you. And I'm also you, you brought up your wife a couple of times. She right, make, tell me about her. Tell me about you guys. Well, we met in India, which is so funny because we were both born in the same hospital here. <laughs> That's too in funny. Greenwich hospital. Yeah, and you have to go to India to like find. Yeah. That, right? um, the first year I went over there in 2007, I went to my teacher's, like, teacher's ashram, pretty much. And he takes care of, like, underprivileged children, you know, street kids or mm. kids that don't come from a good background. And he takes them in and feeds them and clothes them and teaches them yoga and teaches them the whole, like, thing. And so when I went over there the first time, that place, like, really stole my heart and the kid i love kids and the kids stole my heart and i wanted to give back you know to these kids you know so when i got back to the states we really humbly just put like a cardboard box at like our merchandise table and every night i would announce oh we're raising money for some kids in india if you want to like make a donation and it wasn't much but every night you know you get a few bucks and like at the end of the tour you'd have a few hundred dollars and few hundred dollars goes a long way, you know, in India. And over the years, he was just looking after these boys, these like, he would take on like 10 to 12 boys, young boys. And it was a a dream of his to start a girl's ashram as well. Mm. And through all the donations we've made, we started a girl's ashram there. And it's just across the river. And now that's running as well. And so we've been doing that for like 10 years. So I would say this at shows, I would, and her family became, they were fans, and they really took to the project. They took to supporting the kids and were very generous uh, for a lot of years. And because of that, I got her mom's email because, you know, like, oh, here's where you can send the money Mm -hmm. and all this type of stuff. And we just kept in touch, whatever. So then she writes me, she says, oh, my daughter's going to be in India could she come and see the ashram? And I said, yeah, absolutely. But never in a million years did I think that she was actually going to come because number one, India is huge. I don't right. know where she's going in India. And number two, the ashram is not like on the tourist route. I mean, it's, it's India. Like it's pretty raw. I just said, yeah, no problem. Like just trying to be polite. And you think that's it? Yeah. yeah like, I just whatever. thought that just, was it. Yeah. yeah. And then I'm in India and her daughter, emails me my wife future wife emails me and says i'm in india long story short can i come and see the ashram and i remember i ignored it because i got over there and i was like i don't want some like fan like come into like you know this is my place to disappear right, it's like, that's not what it's about yeah, yeah you know that never happened before so I, and i was very protective of that place you know a lot of people ask me you know and we go, and right. I think I was just being a little overly protective. Then she emailed me like a couple weeks later. Thank God she did. And she said, oh, I'm just emailing again. And she wrote, I'm in Benares. 
which is only like a three-hour bus ride from our ashram. So I thought, okay. So I went and asked our Guruji. I said, is it okay? And he said, absolutely, she should come. So she took a bus and she came to the ashram for like two days. And I remember like right when she came in, our Guruji like immediately took like a liking to her, which he doesn't do with everybody. And he would make her sit next to him and he would call her my daughter, my daughter. And it was just like, okay, she's like, I don't know, she's a connection, you know, already. And that really like hit me, you know. But nothing happened. I mean, she was there for two days. You're in an ashram. It's not like a romantic right. setting, you know, you're not. She had a good time and that was it. And she left. But I didn't hear from her after. And I, I wanted to make sure she got back to her, where she was staying okay. And I didn't hear from her for like a few weeks. And I was thinking, oh, well, I hope hope she got back okay, like whatever. And then her mom emailed me and said, oh, my daughter got really sick after she left. And that's she almost died. Oh, that was it. And she had to be evacuated out of India. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. She had a really bad case of E. coli, I think. Yeah. But that was kind of a blessing because I kept in touch with her mom because I felt guilty. I was like, oh, is it because she like came to our ashram? Oh, yeah. Sick? But we kept in touch, kept in touch, kept in touch. And the next time I came into town, we all linked up and how are you feeling? And that's when we really started to get to know each other. That's when I was, you know, starting to stalk her Facebook a little bit. And like, you know, we like, that's when you're like, oh, wait a minute, there's something else happening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. And then I proposed there. We went back to India like a year later and I proposed at the ashram. It's so interesting too, because you have, I mean, I would imagine it would be easy for parents, you know, to sort of look at the life you were living right? and then say, okay, so this is our daughter. Who is this guy? And like, yeah. what's the life that she's potentially going to yeah. be stepping into? Yeah. And it sounds like they were actually unusually mm-hmm. um, open to you and sort of like what you were about and the way yeah, you were well, living. They, you know, she had been traveling a lot before that. She was oh, going okay. to this thing called Global College, which oh. is actually a, a thing from LIU. Oh, okay. Yeah, university. Yeah. And she was traveling the world. She would do a semester in different parts of the world. So this was a part of her. Yeah. yeah. She's a big traveler. She lived in Nepal for a year. Mm. That's kind of like her happy place, like her home. And Nepal's a very similar culture to India. So right. and they were they were very big fans of my music, you know. Right. And so I think they knew me in some regard. There's a comfort level. Yeah, there was yeah. a comfort level and and I had spoken to her mom so much yeah. that it just, it was natural. Yeah. It was a natural And thing. she also knew the quality of your heart yeah. because of the work that you were doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the thing that was so special about them is they never treated me like I was like a musician. Like, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they, they just treated me like a human being, which you don't always get. I just felt like whenever I was with them, I felt like, oh yeah, they're like, they're like family. Yeah, that's you know, amazing. It just felt natural and... Yeah, just all, it all was written. Yeah. It all flowed. So you begin to build a life, a new approach to music, a right. renewed sense of spirituality and a home. Right. And a partner right. to sort of like ride with you and co-create with you and yeah. build this amazing life and, and have since built, it sounds like rebuilt, not just a living, but a life around music very much in the way that you want to def- define right. it. Like you, you're out, you're traveling, you're touring a lot, you're right. creating a lot. But you're very much in control of your own music now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy that you say that. I mean, 
because we're at this point right now that's, you know, talking about the story, like whatever, my story, people will say, oh, man, didn't that just suck going through that whole Geffen thing and whatever, major label, you know. I'm like, no, it didn't because I learned so much. I learned so much about art and music and control and the industry and it gave me so much knowledge at such an early age and I had to grow up really quick and the whole journey has forced me to really step into myself and speak up for my truth and like speak up for my art and my songs and do what I want to do you know and you know here we are 15 years later you know and I have my first independent album and we released it in our own way, in a very unique way. We didn't release it like a regular record. And I'm in a place now where I'm like, oh, well, I know what I don't like. And I know what I like. And I'm much more clear on my vision. Musically, as a, you know, in my whatever, I don't know, company. I don't know. I don't consider it a company, but. <laughs> Your indie label. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I'm just so much clearer on like how I want to do things in my life. And that comes from all the struggle of the past 15 years, you know. There's a lot of, like, my friends, you know, who have been doing this for, like, five years, and they're, like, way bigger than I am, you know. And it was kind of like, oh, God, you know, you can have, like, I've been doing this for 15 years, man, you know. <laughs> and um, you, at first, you start to get into, like, a little bit of jealousy or mm. resentment or something like this. But when I step back and I get out of my ego and I look back at the whole process, I, I'm so grateful for the journey that I've had. If it's taken long, who cares? You know, because it's just really taught me so much, not just about my art, but really about myself and has really helped me grow and step into my higher self, you know. It's just been crazy. It's been a crazy journey. This moment, you know, in my life now, I'm still so young, but I don't think I've been like happier, you know, than like this moment. I can honestly say that. I just feel like I'm just very clear on what I want. And I'm also very aware of how big a blessing it is to be able to play music for people to show up into a city and have people actually take time out of their lives to buy a ticket and come to a place and hear you play. I mean, it's just such, it's really like such a blessing. Whereas before, I don't think, like when I was touring, like I don't think I realized that as much. Mm. I thought like, oh, well, this is what's supposed to happen. Right, you know? it's like another gig on the tour, yeah. check, check the box. Yeah, 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 and I wasn't like that. And I realized that looking back, like I wasn't really that happy. I was just kind of like pushing, pushing, pushing and like, and now, you know, every night, like I, you know, when we have a show, I, I look out and I'm like, I can't believe that all these people are here just to hear these songs. Mm. Like, this is so, and it's so healing for me. People are like, oh, your music is, you know, so healing for my life. I'm like, you have no idea how healing it is for me to be able to be up here and serve you in this way like it's it's um and i think like it took me that whole journey it took me those 15 years to like understand that blessing and and i hope that i never forget that and i hope it just gets deeper and deeper and the gratitude gets bigger and bigger you know as we continue on 
Yeah. Because no. I know that it can stop like like that. Yeah. You know? You've seen that side of the industry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've seen that side of the industry. I've also seen that side of like, you know, the last like few years, I've had a lot of health challenges mm. that have made me had to stop touring. Yeah. And that really put things in perspective too. Like, you know, this can just like poof, you know. So it's been, it's been really beautiful to recognize, I think, that. Yeah, it makes you more present. Yeah, absolutely. So as we sit here, if I offer up a term, to live a good life, what Mm -hmm. comes up? To live a good life. I mean, I don't know. For some reason, immediately the story comes to me that I haven't really thought about in a while. When we were sitting with our Guruji in India one time, and he told us the story, he said, there was this uh, young boy, you know, walking on the road, you know, and he looks off and he sees this like super old man, like 80, 90, whatever, planting a seed in the ground. And um, he thought, oh, well, how foolish that this man is planting this tree, right? He's going to die before he this tree like grows to bear fruit, you know? And he calls out to the man, hey, you know, you're so foolish. Why are you why are you planting this tree? You know, like this, you're going to die like before you see it grow. And the old man said, my whole life I've been eating the fruit off trees that others have planted before me, you know. And the boy was extremely humbled, you know, at that point. I think there's a point in your life where you step out of your own story, you know, and you step into the collective and the blessing of serving somebody in some fashion. doesn't have to be a big thing, you know, where you are completely out of yourself. And I feel like that's freedom, you know, that's living a good life, you know. That's something that, you know, I aspire to, you know, not only musically, but spiritually. And it's really simple is just to understand the blessing of of serving others. You know, most people, I think, you know, they use the word like charity, which I don't really like that word because I think it has a attitude of looking down on somebody that's less fortunate, right, than you are. I'd rather like to hear the word service because I feel like people come before you in all different forms and shapes and situations, and it's an opportunity for you to serve. So really, you are indebted to that person that you're serving, you know, because they're bestowing that blessing upon you. Because as you get older, you know, you realize like how hard it is to find an opportunity to serve. It's kind of weird. You know, so living a good life is for me, I think, getting out of my own story, getting out of my own story and really just looking on another person as, yeah, an opportunity to serve in whatever capacity. Mm. If it's like cooking a meal, if it's like giving somebody a hug, you know, doesn't have to be like feeding like thousands of people, you know, or if it's just listening, you know, like one of my best friends in high school, my roommate, my senior year, his name is Adrian. 
was just a really amazing kid, great guy. His dad was like this Buddhist, like saint, really. Like he was like an amazing guy. But whenever I'd come back into the dorm room and like vent, you know, he would listen to me and he wouldn't say anything to me. But I knew with every bone in my body that he was a hundred percent listening to what I was saying neutrally from a neutral place. And that was all the healing that I needed. You know, it could just be listening to somebody offering your space, you know? Mm. So yeah, that's the good life to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Get, get out of your own story. So, um, so we're very fortunate. Not only are you sitting Mm -hmm. across from me in our studio, but two feet from you on the floor is your guitar. Yes. (laughs) I brought the axe. And I compel you to, uh, play a song. Yes. To, uh, before we leave. Absolutely.
Thank you. So if you're still listening, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just completely love that you enjoyed this episode so much that you've listened until now. You're an awesome human being. And while we're wrapping things up, might as well um, share a quick shout out to our super cool brand partners. If you love the show, and I'm guessing you do because you're still here, please support them. They help make the podcast possible. Check out the links in today's show notes. And don't forget also your spot at this year's camp GLP. As we recently announced, this will be our final year. We're expecting about 400 amazing humans from all around the world. It's going to be more epic than ever. And if you've been waiting, be sure to register soon. You can find that link at goodlifeproject.com slash camp today, or just click the link in the show notes. See you next week.